Welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin. With the end of summer comes the arrival of hurricane season for the southern United States and the East Coast. Today, we await their arrival through radar and satellite imagery, watch their ferocity on television, and we expect the government to assist with their cleanup. All of these things are relatively new in the long history of hurricanes. Today, I am joined by historian Eric J. Dolan to discuss the history behind hurricanes and our ever-changing efforts to understand them. Eric is the best-selling author of numerous books and a returning guest on the podcast, and in this episode, he is going to talk to us about his newest book, A Furious Sky, The 500-Year History of America's Hurricanes. He and I will discuss some of the earliest encounters with hurricanes in the New World, the early scientists who studied them, and some of the most notable hurricanes to strike the United States. Now on to the show. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories that are just too crazy to believe. The stranger than fiction and super unique. Eric J. Dolan. Uh, welcome, well, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Yeah, um, so you are the, uh, you're the first guest, I can say, that is making a return visit, so thank you very much for coming back. Oh, um, I'm honored. <laughs> um, so, um, last time we spoke, we talked about your book, um, uh, Black Flags and Blue Waters, um, about mm-hmm. piracy, and today we're going to talk, uh, about your latest book, uh, A Furious Sky, the 500-year history of America's hurricanes. Uh, so if you could uh, tell us a, a little bit about yourself, and um, I'm noticing a little bit of tre- a trend here with your books. They all kind of have to do with the ocean and water. Uh, tell us a little bit about why that's your area of interest. Yeah, uh, I've always loved maritime history and maritime issues. Actually, when I was a kid, I wanted to grow up and become Jacques Cousteau and get into marine biology. So I've always had a close affinity for the ocean. And when I switched from science, <clears throat> excuse me, in college uh, and and graduate school, and I got more interested in, in uh, <clears throat> public policy and history, uh, the maritime approach seemed to make a lot of sense. I am speaking to you from Marblehead, Massachusetts, which, as many of your listeners probably know, is right on the coast. So I'm very nearby the ocean. Uh, The local history uh, creates a lot of interest for me in maritime issues. And uh, this book, A Furious Sky, is my 14th book, and the vast majority of them have focused on maritime issues, but some haven't. Uh, Fur Fortune and Empire, which was about the epic history of the fur trade in America, had a section, a couple of sections that involved maritime history, but it was more uh, land-based. A book I'm working on right now that won't be out for a few years is on privateering in the American Revolution. Of course, that has a maritime focus because there are ships on the ocean, but it also involves a lot of history about what was happening in the colonies at the time. Now, the way that this book came about uh, was sort of a little bit different than a lot of my other books. Uh, for example, for Black Flags, Blue Waters, um, the idea was mine alone. I had, a, I had a bunch of book ideas, and I pitched them to different 
people. I also pitched them to my kids, and my kids got very excited about me writing this book, so that got me more excited about writing the book. But with hurricanes, I'd always been interested in hurricanes. I haven't lived through any major hurricanes other than the remnants of Hurricane Gloria, Hurricane Bob, and Hurricane Sandy. But where I was living at the time, they didn't have a major impact. It's not like I lived in Florida, Louisiana, or Texas. or in New England during the hurricane of 1938. But I'd always been fascinated by hurricanes, and I had looked around for a single hurricane to write about. Uh, Unfortunately for me, uh, the two top hurricanes that came to mind were the Galveston Hurricane of 1900 and the Great Hurricane of 1938, which pummeled Long Island and New England. Both of those hurricanes, however, have numerous books that have been written about them, some of which are very, very good. So I didn't want to go down that road again. So I had stopped thinking about writing a book on hurricanes when all out of the blue, my editor at uh, LiveWrite, which is part of W.W. Norton, and the head of sales sent an email to my agent asking him if he thought I would be interested in writing a history of the hurricanes of America. And the reason they were interested in that is because this is right after 2017, which was sort of the hurricane season from hell. It was hell. a bad year. Oh, it was a really bad year. It was Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma, Hurricane Maria. The cumulative cost from those hurricanes was about $265 billion. So hurricanes were on people's minds, and the people at my publisher thought that given my skill set of pulling a lot of information together and telling histories that span hundreds of years in a compelling narrative fashion would work quite well for the history of hurricanes. And so when I got that email, I was really excited because I was already interested in hurricanes, and here they were coming to me. Uh, with a request to do the very thing that I had sort of been thinking about for many years. So it was an easy decision, and uh, although (laughs) it wasn't easy to write the book, uh, trying to compress 500-plus years of history uh, into a single readable, hopefully page-turning book is uh, something that takes quite a while. It took me two years to research and write the book. Yeah, this is this is no easy task, and and you know I think the risk of of writing a book like this is you know it just becomes repetitive and and kind of uh, episodic. You know, here's this hurricane, here's this hurricane, here's this hurricane, but but that's not what you have. You have a, you have a really interesting. Each hurricane is unique to the times in which it struck, so it has its own unique story, but you've also couched it in this really interesting narrative as we learn better how to deal with these things. Yeah, I think you you, you captured it uh, beautifully. When I started working on the book, the thing that I wanted to absolutely avoid is having this be sort of a, a guidebook to hurricanes. You know, here's Hurricane 1, Hurricane 2, Hurricane 3, Hurricane 4. And if you do that, there can be a repetitive nature. But if you took hurricanes and viewed it as a backbone for telling a broader history of America, then I felt there was a very, uh, really good path to go down. And that's the one that I pursued in writing the book. And that's sort of the way that I view all of my books. My whaling book is on whaling, my fur trade books on fur trade, my lighthouse book is on lighthouses, but all of them use the main topic as a narrative backbone to tell a, a sort of broader 
hopefully more compelling story. And as you said, each hurricane, the, the dynamics or the basics of the hurricane, what a hurricane is and the kind of devastation it wreaks is quite similar. However, these hurricanes hit different places, the ones that I've chosen to highlight, hit different places, different types of populations, different decades and centuries, and there's a very different environment surrounding them. And even the individual stories, though equally tragic, are quite individual. Right. So so let's get into into some of these stories a little bit. Um, but, but before we do, let's just kind of establish a baseline. Um, it might seem like an oversimplistic question, but but what is a hurricane? Yeah, I, I wish it was a simple question because it took me a lot of reading to really understand it. it it's very uh, complex uh, to truly understand hurricanes, and I'm in awe of the work that meteorologists do. But uh, simply stated, hurricanes are uh, violent, swirling storms. They rotate uh, counterclockwise in the northern hemisphere and clockwise in the southern hemisphere. And they have to have sustained winds of at least 74 miles per hour. They generally form with the ocean down to a depth of about 150 feet reaches the uh, trigger temperature of at least 80 degrees Fahrenheit. And that provides the massive heat that is necessary to fuel these hurricanes. Two other conditions that are necessary for hurricanes to thrive are low vertical wind shear, which means you don't want to have the winds changing speed and direction at different heights because that'll sort of rip apart <clears throat> the hurricane structure. And you also have to have an abundance of warm, moist air that evaporates from the ocean surface because as that moist air rises into the atmosphere, it condenses into rain droplets or ice crystals. And in the process of condensation, it releases latent heat. And that heat gives the power to the hurricane. And these hurricanes can be enormous. They can be up to almost a thousand miles in diameter, and they can reach from the Earth's surface up to almost 50,000 feet, the, the bottom, the top of the troposphere. Um, and the thing that's most amazing, or one of the features that I think is most amazing about a hurricane is the the eye. Uh, the winds in a hurricane, they tend to get stronger and stronger as you get closer to the central radius, the central point of the hurricane. But in that center is something called the eye. And it's a, it's basically a, an area where the winds will uh, diminish to almost nothing. There are often few clouds, so you can see the blue sky above, yet this hurricane has just, just gone over you. Now you have this calm period, which can last 15 minutes, 30 minutes, or even longer than that. And then on the other side, the hurricane is still moving. You're going to get walloped by the other side of the hurricane. And the thing that's so fascinating about the eye is how it's experienced. If you're on the ocean, if you're in an eye and you're on a ship, the, the waves are still mountainous. Uh, it may be bright blue sky above, but you're still fighting to survive if you're unfortunate enough to be caught in the eye of a hurricane. But on land, it creates a very different sensation, especially uh, decades ago before we were able to track hurricanes so well and before people knew so much about their structure. A lot of people, when the eye would come overhead, they would leave their... Uh, you know, houses or wherever they were hiding, they would think that the hurricane had actually departed. 
But those people, if they started to go about their lives again, would be rudely awakened the 30 minutes, 45 minutes later when the other wall of the, uh, of the eye came roaring in and all of a sudden the winds and uh, the rain picked up again. So the eye is beautiful, magisterial. It looks great in pictures, but it's still a harbinger of uh, more destruction to, to come. So I just thought hurricanes are, are fascinating from every single perspective. And the last thing to mention about hurricanes that a lot of your listeners know about because they watch the weather forecasts is that hurricanes are rated uh, based on their wind speed. There are five categories in this so-called Saffir-Simpson hurricane wind scale. And basically category one hurricane goes from 74 to 95 miles per hour sustained winds, category two, 96 to 110 miles, and then category three and above are all major hurricanes. Category three hurricane is 111 miles per hour to 129 miles per hour, then category four is 130 to 156, and category five, which are the, the worst of all, is 157 miles and higher. And as you might imagine, uh, there haven't been a whole lot of Category 5 hurricanes uh, since we've been recording history about hurricanes and uh, know the pressure and roughly the speed of the winds, and that goes back to about 1851. There have only been five Category 5 hurricanes that have hit in what is now the United States. Uh, but don't let that fool you. A Category 1 hurricane, like Hurricane Sandy, which struck the East Coast, New Jersey, and New York, can be devastating. Uh, although, as a rule of thumb, as you ascend the hierarchy in the Saffir-Simpson wind scale, you're getting into hurricanes that are going to cause more and more uh, devastation. Now, one thing that I found was interesting in, in your book is that the, um, meteorologists have attempted to go back in history before we had this scale and try to assign a category value to historic storms. Yeah, and there are a couple of reasons for that. I mean, it's it's important if you what you like to do with any kind of natural event is you want to try to understand how and if things are evolving or changing over time. So, in order to compare hurricanes of today with hurricanes of the past, you want to have a common metric to use to compare them. So what meteorologists have done is they've gone through uh, history and all the things that were written down and uh, pressure pressures that were taken, uh, you know, atmospheric pressure. Uh, the barometer has been around for many centuries, and uh, people started measuring the atmospheric pressure of these hurricanes as they were coming through that plus reports of uh, weather observers and other individuals you can piece all of those things together including tide surges or storm surges you can piece all these little pieces of information together sort of like a forensic hurricanologist and you can divine what you think are the actual wind speeds of hurricanes in the past. And as I said, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the National Hurricane Center, which is part of that, they have gone back through the records back to 1851, and they've assigned a category uh, to almost every single hurricane that has taken place. And that's very useful because it allows for historical comparisons. And it also gives us an opportunity, us being people 
who are familiar with this Saffir-Simpson wind scale, it gives us an opportunity to say, oh, wow, the Galveston hurricane of 1900 was a Category 4, or this, or this was a Category 1, or this was a Category 5. So it's, it's, a, it's sort of a, a shorthand way of putting past hurricanes and history into better perspective. Now, uh, your story uh, starts roughly 500 years ago, and, and to be fair, <laughs> indigenous peoples ha- had been experiencing hurricanes for century, uh, centuries before yes. um, you know, Europeans showed up. Um, mm-hmm. But how does, you know, even going back to you know, Christopher Columbus, um, how can he claim credit for being one of the uh, first Europeans to make <laughs> a weather forecast? Well, uh, you know, you mentioned it's very important. You mentioned the native peoples. Of course, the native peoples who were in uh, the Caribbean in particular for many, many thousands of years have experienced hurricanes. They used to, in fact, the word hurricane comes from native words like native words like huracan and juracan that were translated into English and other languages. And the reason that Christopher Columbus has this honor of being the first European to uh, have a hurricane forecast is essentially he was the first European that was over in this part of the world. And he had come over multiple times. He had four voyages spanning a number of years. And during those voyages, which are very controversial because of the way and the often horrific way he treated the natives that he encountered, as well as other individuals he encountered, uh, fellow Europeans, uh, basically he got to know uh, many of the natives, the Tayano Indians, who had experience with hurricanes. So during his first three voyages, he had heard stories about these massive storms, the likes of which Europe does not encounter. I mean, Europe has some major storms, but they don't have uh, hurricanes like those that occur in the uh, western Atlantic. Uh, They get the tails of hurricanes that go across, but not the hurricanes themselves. Uh, So Columbus had a lot of interactions with the native peoples. He asked a lot of questions. He learned a lot about these storms, and he experienced some rather bad weather and maybe the uh, the the far reaches of hurricanes that didn't hit him directly. So he had some sense that there were these massive storms that could take place in the Caribbean that could uh, destroy uh, everything man-made or human-made in, in, in their way. So when he went back in 1502 for his fourth and final voyage to the New World, he saw the portents of a hurricane, you know, the red sky at night, the long swells in the water, um, other, other sort of signs that the natives had told him about. So he was very concerned because he was off Hispaniola. He had been told not to go there because of his bad reputation and having been kicked out of Hispaniola a couple of years ago because of bad behavior. But he had a number of ships, you know, it was, it was him and his fellow ships. They wanted to go into the safe harbor of Santo Domingo. The governor of Hispaniola 
said absolutely not. And Christopher Columbus said, the reason I want to go in there is because a major storm is coming and you're about ready to send 28 ships back to Spain with all the gold that we've been collecting from Central and South America. Don't do it. Don't send those ships out for another eight or 10 days or else you might lose them all because this hurricane is coming. Well, the governor of Hispaniola refused to listen to Columbus. Not only that, he refused to allow Columbus to bring his ships into port. So Columbus didn't just uh, rue his situation. He said, I've got to get some shelter for my ships. So he went further down the coast, found a sheltered embayment, and the governor sent off these 28 ships to go back to Spain. One of those ships was called the Aguja, which means needle, Spanish. And it was a very important ship to Columbus because on board was all the gold and silver that uh, King Ferdinand Queen Isabella had promised Columbus as payment for his earlier work in the New World, essentially. So Columbus had a very personal reason for not wanting these ships to take off, especially if they might be lost. Well, what happens? The ships take off on their voyage, and barely a day or two into their voyage, a hurricane comes and hits. And most of the ships sink to the bottom of the ocean. Many, many people are killed. Uh, A couple of the ships make it back to Santa Domingo and tell the governor what had happened, and he's crestfallen. The only ship that made it through the hurricane was the Aguja, the one that had all of Columbus's riches on board. So when Columbus finally sails into Santo Domingo after the hurricane, the locals there, including the governor, sort of uh, complain that he was sort of a prophet of doom and maybe he, uh, a, 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 uh, a witch of some sort almost because he had predicted this and this happened and maybe he did this on purpose. Not many people believe that, but that was one of the storylines of the day. Yet Columbus is the one who laughed last because his treasure made it through. It was also the first recorded accurate hurricane forecast in the New World, although have to add, I'm sure, many native peoples in years well before Columbus's time were able to also read the signs of a coming hurricane and take evasive action, perhaps going inland on an island, uh, going into protected areas. So it wasn't as if they weren't familiar with hurricanes, but this was new and unusual for Columbus. And then after he went back to Europe, course uh the next 500 years there were hundreds and hundreds of hurricanes that struck what is now the united states and uh, as well as the caribbean and creates uh, what i think is a, just a fascinating history of uh, the advance of science and the destruction of uh, of things that are human made and nature as well now you know we live in the 21st century and and these storms still cause catastrophic devastation but how did people deal with these as colonists you know just a, <laughs> a few of them in wooden structures uh months away from their homeland how did they deal with these things uh well as best they could which was not very well in terms of the outcomes because the colonists They didn't have the benefit of hurricane hunter planes or satellite technology or even 
competent weather forecasters. So they wouldn't know that there was a hurricane in the offing until it was basically at their doorstep. And what happened since in almost all of our colonies, they began to grow from the coast inward. And for most of colonial America's history, the vast majority of people lived within just a couple of miles of the coast. If a hurricane came ashore, they were going to get pummeled and their houses weren't built to hurricane codes. And a lot of them would have been flattened. Uh, Ships were destroyed on a regular basis. Many people uh, died and people back then viewed hurricanes mainly as uh, God's work and God worked in mysterious ways. So hurricanes would come and go with no apparent uh, reason or rationale or timing other than coming during the summer months uh, every every year and perhaps hitting different colonies at greater rates than uh, the ones to the north. But the great hurricane of 1635, which was a doozy by all accounts, pummeled the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the Plymouth Colony uh, and uh, killed a number of Native Americans as well as colonists and was a major event in the history, the early history of the colonies. And every few years, there was another hurricane that would leave a scar on the people and the history of, of a region. Now, you mentioned, you know, early on, people were kind of content to see these as just acts of God. But, you know, we get into the Enlightenment, and there's this questioning of how the world works. And, you know, maybe hurricanes aren't quite this random phenomenon. Um, Can you describe some of the early pioneers who studied hurricanes and, and made some major breakthroughs into the nature of how these work? Sure. Uh, A lot of people through the 1600s and the early 1700s thought that hurricanes sort of popped up where they where they experienced them and then dissipated shortly thereafter. They didn't really understand how they traveled and how the winds within a hurricane uh, traveled as well. One of the first people one of the the first individuals to uh, provide a real advance in our understanding of hurricanes was our founding scientist, Benjamin Franklin in 1743. He was in Philadelphia. He was all excited. He wanted to see a uh, he wanted to see the eclipse that night and uh, he was very upset because he went outside and he was looking skyward and then all of a sudden a massive storm came down and sent him scurrying in inside and the winds when he went outside were coming from the northeast so he assumed that the storm had also come from the northeast so he was very puzzled to find out that Uh, His brother, who was in Boston, which is to the northeast of Philadelphia, had been able to go outside of his house, look skyward and see the eclipse. And uh, Benjamin Franklin just couldn't understand why that was the case. But then he started looking at newspaper reports for all the cities and towns in between Boston and Philadelphia. And what he realized is that the storm didn't originate in Philadelphia. But, I mean, the the storm... What he realized is the storm was moving, the entire storm was moving in a northeasterly direction. And the reason he had winds that were coming from the northeast is that he was on the left side of the eye of the hurricane as it passed. So he thought the whole storm was moving down the coast. 
but it was actually moving up the coast, but he was confused by the direction of the wind. So he's the first person to prove that these storms could move from one area to another area based on prevailing winds and that the winds that you're experiencing within the hurricane can actually be contrary or in a different direction than the hurricane is moving in. So that's one of the early sort of quick improvements that we had in understanding uh, the dynamics of hurricanes. But then for many years after Franklin, there were no real advances made in meteorology, despite all the other advances that were made in many sciences during this age of enlightenment or age of reasoning. Um, then in the mid-1800s, uh, both amateurs and expert meteorologists started adding to our understanding of hurricanes. One of the most interesting was a guy named William Redfield, who ran a saddle shop and then built steamboats that went up and down the East Coast. He was also an amateur scientist. And in 1821, there was a big hurricane that hit New England. He lived in Connecticut. His wife had just died. And right after the hurricane, he had to go to his in-laws' house, which were to the north and west of where he lived by about 70 miles. And as he was traveling by wagon from his house in Connecticut to his in-laws' house in western Massachusetts, he noticed something very strange. The trees around his house in Connecticut were all knocked down and were facing in a uh, south uh, no, sorry, so a no northwest direction. So they were sort of toppled over and facing the northwest. But the trees close to his in-laws' house were all toppled and facing in a southwest direction. So he was trying to understand how could this be? And what suddenly came to him is the notion that the winds in this massive storm on one side were traveling to the northwest on the other side, they were whipping down to the southeast. So he's the first person to really give us a sense that hurricanes were giant whirlwinds. He thought they traveled in sort of in almost complete circles as they moved. Then there was a professional meteorologist named James Espy, who knew a lot more about meteorology. He's the guy that gave us the concept that Hurricanes are low-pressure areas. As the, in the center of the storm, there's low pressure. The uh, moist air is going upwards, and as it goes upwards, it condenses and lets out the latent heat uh, that powers the storm. But in an area of low pressure, what do you have when you have a vacuum in an area of low pressure? The wind wants to rush in and fill it. So he postulated that the winds in a hurricane, instead of going in a circular manner, basically the winds would rush into the center of the hurricane, just like the spokes of a bicycle wheel go from the outer rim into the center. Well, it turns out both Redfield and Espy were a little bit wrong and a little bit right. Hurricanes are whirlwinds, but they don't go in complete pure circles. And the winds do rush into the center of a hurricane, but they don't do so in straight lines, as Espy thought. And it took the understanding and applications of a guy named William Farrell 
who looked at how the Coriolis effect affects the atmosphere. And he was able to add the missing piece, which essentially gives us our current understanding of hurricanes, which are these spiraling storms, because as the, as the air rushes into the center of the hurricane, the Coriolis effect sort of pushes it a little bit to the right. And that creates that swirling hurricane that uh, the winds get stronger and stronger as you go into the center of the hurricane. So, but that, that whole storm controversy in the mid 1800s was a major topic of conversation, but it ultimately helped improve our understanding of what hurricanes are and how they operate. We're still learning new things now. Hurricanes are incredibly complex, but since that time, the evolution of radio and uh, well, telegraphy, then radio, then hurricane hunter flights, then satellites gave us more and more tools or gave the meteorologists more and more tools to understand, evaluate, monitor, and forecast hurricanes. So it's really been quite a few hundred years of improvements in our understanding of what hurricanes are to the point now that we are never caught completely off guard about a hurricane's arrival. But still, even with all of our knowledge, all of our understanding, all of our uh, technology, hurricanes are somewhat unpredictable. And they often do things that uh, surprise us. So it's not as if we know everything about hurricanes right now, but we certainly know a lot more about them now than we did 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago or more. Now, uh, let's look, you know, 100 years ago at the very famous hurricane uh, called the, the Galveston Hurricane of 1900. It's widely regarded as, as perhaps the worst natural disaster in American history. Um, you know, by that point, you know, we did have some forecasting. We had the U U.S. Weather Bureau. Um, can you describe what happened in that situation? Uh, yeah, in, in 1900, uh, the, the, the Galveston hurricane before, as it was developing, we did have some ability to forecast hurricane movements. There were reports from, uh, ships sometimes that could get to a, a telegraph and telegraph information to a weather bureau the Central Weather Bureau office in Washington, D.C. made the call about whether something was a tropical storm or a hurricane or when, when to put up warning flags and warn the local populace. But what happened in 1900 was a confluence of events. One is Cubans had long been very, very good at predicting and forecasting hurricanes. However, right before the Galveston hurricane hit, there was a falling out between Americans and Cubans. Essentially, the Americans didn't trust the Cubans' expertise and cut them off. And that was a big mistake because the Cubans were accurately forecasting the direction and power of the Gal what became the Galveston hurricane, and their input could have been helpful. So that's one problem that was in advance of the Galveston hurricane. Another one was that uh, the local meteorologist or weather bureau employee, guy named Isaac 
Klein was a little bit arrogant and thought he knew everything about hurricanes, but he didn't know everything about hurricanes, nor did his fellow meteorologists. And he looked at recent history, and he basically told the people of Galveston in a newspaper article in 1891 when he was asked about the likelihood of a hurricane hitting Galveston, he basically told them that that was a a vanishing concern. There, there's really the, the science, what we know about West Indian hurricanes is that they don't tend to strike Texas. You really don't have anything to worry about. And even if one comes here, our geography is such that uh, we'll be able to weather the storm. Well, it turns out that his understanding of history was rather incomplete. He didn't really look back at all the hurricanes that had hit Texas in the last 60 or 70 years. And if he had, he would have been a little less confident that Galveston didn't have anything to worry about in terms of being hit by a hurricane. So he was feeding information to the central office and they didn't think a hurricane was coming. But right at the last moment, Isaac uh, did think that it was a, a more serious storm. Uh, however, the central office was the one that made the final call. So right as the hurricane was coming into Galveston, uh, the locals didn't think that a major storm was coming to hit them. But it quickly enveloped them and basically wiped most of Galveston off the map, killed a minimum of 6,000 people, perhaps as many as 10,000 or 12,000 people. And as you said, is the worst natural disaster ever to hit uh, the United States. And you can't go back in Monday morning quarterback, Monday morning quarterback. We don't know exactly what would have happened if Isaac Klein hadn't been so arrogant, if they had paid more attention to what the Cubans were saying. But my guess is that people would have gotten more advance warning and the devastation that was wrought wouldn't have been quite as bad. But no matter what, when a hurricane that massive plows into a island that is barely four to six feet above sea level, uh, you're going to have major problems. Another thing that Isaac Klein didn't really understand is he thought that since the ocean off of Galveston is very shallow for a long ways, that the storm waves being pushed or the storm waves coming from a hurricane would break way offshore and all the water would sort of dissipate and maybe travel around Galveston into the bay behind. But what he didn't understand is the whole concept of storm surge, because nobody understood it at that time, and that when a hurricane is coming across the ocean, it's basically, especially on its right side where the winds are strongest, it is pushing a huge mound of water forward. And when it encounters shallow water, it just rises up higher, and on top of that are the waves. So... Any major hurricane that would have hit Galveston at the time would have caused dramatic damage. And as a result, after 1900, the people of Galveston finally built something that had been recommended by a few people in previous years, which is a seawall, that a very large seawall that, in effect, helped protect Galveston in 1915 when another major hurricane hit. They not only put a seawall there, they also raised up the height of the entire island about 15 or 16 feet by bringing fill in. So they essentially created a more hurricane-proof island, and that's what we have today as uh, Galveston. So some very um, clever engineering solutions to try to cope with living in the path of hurricanes. 
Yeah. Uh, well, there's a lot of things you can do. The part of the problem is they're often quite expensive. Sometimes they inconvenience people. And uh, it's hard to get both individuals and governments to take those actions because there's always a cost-benefit analysis. I mean, a good example is uh, Hurricane Katrina. As most people know, in 2005, uh, Hurricane Katrina hit the Mississippi, Louisiana coast and was particularly devastating in New Orleans, which is surrounded by levees that essentially keep Lake Pontchartrain and the Gulf of Mexico from flooding most of New Orleans, which is a lot of New Orleans is, is under, under sea level. Well, during the hurricane, uh, those levees, there are about 50 uh, breaches and breaks in the levees, and ultimately 80% of New Orleans was under as much as 10 feet of water. And Part of the reason why the levees broke is because they there were problems in the engineering of them, the building of them, and the maintenance of them. They were built supposedly to handle a Category 3 hurricane, which is what Hurricane Katrina ended up being. But clearly, they couldn't handle Hurricane Katrina. After Hurricane Katrina, there was a massive effort to rebuild the levees and the walls, spent huge amounts of money, and they were supposed to be able to protect New Orleans from another Hurricane Katrina-like storm. Unfortunately, just within the last year, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers uh, sounded the alarm and said basically that those new walls and levees that we have built are starting to sink into the sediment and uh, are not going to be able to provide the level of protection that we originally anticipated that they would be able to. And uh, so that right now they're going out and they're trying to find out what additional fixes they can do to ensure the safety of New Orleanians in the face of another hurricane. And, you know, it's not just governments that can take action. Individuals can buy storm shutters, they can have evacuate, they can know what local evacuation plans are, they can have a go bag ready so if they have to evacuate, they can listen to government officials when they tell them to evacuate and hopefully not get too upset with those government officials if the hurricane doesn't hit their area as bad badly as predicted. Because that's one of the problems with evacuations. Sometimes you order a mass evacuation, and the hurricane at the last minute either weakens or shifts in another direction. And then people get upset because of all the money and time and effort that had to be put in to the evacuation. Another thing that could be done is perhaps not to subsidize people who choose to rebuild in floodplain and flood-prone areas with national uh, flood insurance. We can also invest more heavily in meteorological studies so we can better understand hurricanes, maybe improve forecasts. But in the end, no matter what you do to protect yourself from hurricanes, these storms are just too massive, too powerful. Any community that a major or even a minor hurricane plows into is going to sustain significant damage and there are probably going to be deaths associated with it. However, the number, the amount of damage and the number of deaths can be reduced if you take active measures to protect yourself from the hurricanes.
and to deal with the the uh, sort of the outfall of hurricanes. You know, afterwards, make sure you uh, you uh, give the f- Federal Emergency Management Agency, which uh, brings a lot of uh, relief to people in the wake of hurricanes. Make sure you fund them sufficiently. Give them the supplies and the expertise they need to take care of the people who have just been ravaged by hurricanes. So we're not helpless in the face of hurricanes, but there's nothing really that we can do to avert their strike. And we just have to work better on uh, trying to protect ourselves before the hurricane hits, acting responsibly as the hurricane hits, and afterwards trying as best we can as a society both local communities and the national uh, community to uh, help people get back up on their feet after the hurricane has departed. So one of the best things that, that we do is to try to, you know, prevent as, as much, you know, damage and casualties as we can, and, and that's through early warnings. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've referenced this classification system and, uh, you know, you mentioned Hurricane Katrina. We, we assign these things names. Uh, where did that part of our warning system come from? Where, where did we come up with this classification system? And, and why do we give them names? Well, that's one of the most fascinating parts of the book, at least for me to work on. Uh, essentially, historically, going back, you know, hundreds of years, hurricanes were either named after the year that they struck the Great Hurricane of 1635, or sometimes they were named after if they struck on a saint's day in the in the Caribbean, it would be named after that saint. Uh, but then in the 1940s and into the early 1950s, we started to use Army Navy phonetic alphabet, you know, Alpha Baker, Charlie, and there was another phonetic alphabet uh, designation that was used in the early 1950s. But then in 1956, we made permanent this method of naming hurricanes after women. And that really has its origins back with a guy named Clement Raggy in Australia, who was a weather forecaster, meteorologist at the turn of the century, late 1800s, early 1900s. And he had this habit of naming cyclones, which is another name for hurricane in uh, the Pacific theater. He would name these hurricanes or cyclones after Tahitian women, uh, you know, beauties, as he called them, and he would name them after uh, women. Then you fast forward to 1940, and there was a very famous best-selling book called Storm by uh, George Stuart Rippey that was written. And it was about a massive storm that traveled across the Pacific Ocean and hit California. It wasn't a hurricane, but in this book, he named that storm Mariah, not Maria. It was pronounced but it was pronounced Mariah. And that book was sent out to GIs all over the world during World War II, and actually is probably the reason that the military started naming uh, hurricanes and cyclones in the Pacific Theater after women in the 1940s. Then there was a famous play called Paint Your Wagon in the early 1950s, and there was a great song in that. They call the wind Mariah. So that was another, even though it wasn't about a storm, that was sort of another iteration on the naming things after women. So 
the National the Weather Bureau, which later became the National Weather Service, decided to, on a temporary basis to start naming hurricanes after women. Uh, some people got upset. They thought it was irresponsible to name such horrible <laughs> events after women. Uh, one woman actually said, I'd much rather be have my house be hit by an unnamed hurricane than by a hurricane named after one of my husband's former girlfriends. But despite these protestations, the Weather Bureau decided in 1956 to start naming hurricanes after women. Then we fast forward a little bit to the late 1960s when the National Organization for Women and the women's movement was really picking up a lot of steam. And this woman who was an executive, who was a vice president of now, uh, a woman named Roxy Bolton from Florida, she spearheaded an effort to get the National Weather Service to stop naming hurricanes after women because she thought it was very demeaning, especially the way that hurricanes were represented in the press. They were variously described as, you know, witches, capricious, furious, bad girls, unladylike, erratic, eccentric, treacherous. And these all are being ascribed to hurricanes that are named after women. Well, Roxy Bolton didn't have a lot of success getting the National Weather Service to change their mind and perhaps name. She, she recommended, well, why not name hurricanes after senators? They like to have things named after them. Or why not call them <laughs> himicanes instead of hurricanes? But then in the late 1970s, Jimmy Carter is president. He appoints Juanita Kreps as the Secretary of Commerce, and the Secretary of Commerce oversees the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the National Weather Service. She is a feminist, a self-described feminist, and Australia, just a couple of years earlier, the place that had, uh, you know, of Clement Raggy fame, the guy that originally named storms after women, they decided a few years earlier to start naming hurricanes alternately after women and men. Juanita Kreps said, hey, that's a good idea. And part of that was the pressure put on her by the National Organization of Women as well. And it took a couple of years. But in 1979, the World Meteorological Organization that handles the naming, uh, they instituted this male-female uh, naming system. And there are six lists, each with 21 names, and they alternate from man to woman. And those are the ones that we experience uh, today. So I, I just think it's it's just a great story about how uh, politics and cultural concerns can have a great impact on how we name things and, and uh, describe events that are taking place around us. And I just will add, since this year is predicted to be a pretty uh, bad hurricane season, although we won't know until it's over, there have been years in which there are more than 21 named storms. Now, keep in mind, a named storm is a tropical storm. That's not a hurricane. Once it gets above 39 miles per hour, you're a tropical storm and you get a name. And then, of course, if you ascend to hurricane status, you keep that name. But if we, for some reason this year, and we're already on track for it to be a bumper year, if we have more than 21 named storms, then 
uh, subsequent storms are assigned a letter from the Greek alphabet. So if we ever get to the Greek alphabet this summer, you'll know that we've had one doozy of a season. Right. I, I didn't know this till I was uh, reading through your book and I just, you know, was looking up a little bit on the internet about hurricanes this year, but we're already in like the G's or H's, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, I, I should have looked before I got on the phone with you, but uh, I, I don't remember which number we're up to, but we have broken records with the earliest uh, name storms and the number of them that have come this early. However, as any meteorologist will tell you, that does not necessarily mean that the rest of the season will be on track to break records. However, the seasonal hurricane forecasts, which many organizations beyond the National Weather Service and the National Hurricane Center come out with, they, they are all in pretty good agreement that the ingredients are there this summer to have a very active hurricane season. And one of those ingredients is that the surface temperatures and the upper layers of the ocean in the Atlantic especially are warmer than normal. And if you go back to the beginning of our conversation, you know that the more heat energy there is in the upper layers of the ocean, that's more potential fuel for the hurricanes. Uh, right. And I and I remember um, when we had that uh, weird Saharan dust cloud thing last <laughs> yeah. month, they were talking about how that would affect the hurricane season. Yeah, that sort of well, that dried things out a little bit and uh, probably tamped down on the development of of storms. But traditionally, the the most active months are August, September into early October. There have been hurricanes as early as May in the Caribbean, but we we tend to things really get going for us in the United States. Uh, in August and and September, although there have been some late season hurricanes at the end of October that have caused uh, <laughs> major destruction. So the the last thing I wanted to ask you is, um, what does climate change mean for the American hurricane season going forward? That's an extremely complicated question on a whole bunch of levels. Uh, let me first make clear, and as I do in the book, I believe climate change and global warming is a very real phenomenon. I don't think there's any doubt about that, that the world's temperature, average temperature has gone up about one degree centigrade or almost two degrees Fahrenheit in the last since pre-industrial times in the last hundred plus years. We've had thousands upon thousands of studies by very smart scientists who have delved through all the historical data and current data and basically come to the conclusion that the war the world is warming and if you uh believe as i do as everybody does that you know warmer water can contribute to more hurricane energy in effect that's one possible possible impact uh Global warming has already had an impact in making hurricanes a little bit more devastating because the uh, sea level has risen. Uh, for example, if Hurricane Sandy, which hit in 2012, that hit 100 years earlier, sea level was about a foot lower 
in the New York area, and the devastation would have been correspondingly less. So that's one way in which global warming has had an impact on or an effect on how hurricanes impact us. But there have been numerous, numerous studies, some of which I talk about in the book, that have shown that a warmer world into which we're heading could very well make hurricanes stronger, more intense, higher sustained wind speeds, higher category storms, more major hurricanes. Also, it could make those hurricanes a lot wetter, dumping a lot more water like Hurricane Harvey, which set the all-time record of 60.8 inches in Nederland, Texas. But it's very important, I have to add this, and I, I do make this clear in the book, that understanding hurricane dynamics and how it interacts with the changing climate is very complex. And the the evidence is mounting, and I think extremely persuasive, that global warming is going to have an impact on hurricanes, make them stronger and wetter. However, we don't have a 100% cause and effect relationship. There are going to be more studies that are done, and we'll be able to get a better handle on it as time goes on. But I am concerned that hurricane activity is going to probably get worse as our globe continues uh, to warm. But even if it doesn't, even if hurricane activity stays exactly like it has been, historically, we need to prepare for a hurricane-filled future. And uh, there are a lot of things that we can do to prepare for that, some of which we talked about before. But the, the reason that global warming is such a difficult thing to talk about is even at this stage, when there's been so much research and the International Panel on Climate Change and so many thousands of scientists that are not motivated by politics, but are motivated by wanting to understand how the world operates. So many scientists have concluded global climate change, global warming is, is very real. We have the signatures. Despite that, there are still people who believe to use a word that's very commonly used in today's discussions, that global warming is a hoax. In fact, I'm going to tell you just the other day on my Facebook, professional Facebook page, I posted a book trailer that I did for A Furious Sky. In that book trailer, I mentioned that a warmer world might contribute to stronger hurricanes. Somebody who I don't know, but is a follower of my page, wrote a comment basically saying, is your book full of BS like that, that global climate change is affecting hurricanes? And he actually said, that's a hoax. So it's a fascinating political discussion that we must have. Uh, but I hope that people are open to looking at the facts and making important policy decisions based on the overwhelming evidence that is before us. Um, and I think I think what you provide is the historical evidence that you know the, this does appear to be increasing and the storms are increasing in severity and, and so forth. Um, but yeah, attitudes like that does make it difficult to make policy and preventative decisions. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I don't mind. I, listen, I, my background before I became a full time writer in 2007, I worked for uh, nonprofit groups. I worked in the government. I worked for private industry. Uh, I, I'm a 
a big fan of public policy debates and I'm willing to listen to people on different sides of the argument, but I'm hoping that people retain an open mind and allow evidence and argument when it becomes overwhelming to be uh, persuasive. But uh, it's a very, it's a very tough, it's a tough battle that's still being fought today. All right. Uh, well, Eric, it was a tremendous pleasure to talk to you again. Um, uh, your book, uh, again, A Furious Sky, uh, we've only touched the surface. Uh, you go on to talk about how hurricanes have shaped um, American wars like the American Revolution. You talk about how uh, presidents have responded to the, the catastrophe and devastation of hurricanes. Um, and, you know, you profile some of the most famous hurricanes that people are familiar with, like Katrina uh, or Sandy or Marina or Maria or Hurricane Andrew. So um, very, very interesting, very broad book. Uh, if someone wanted to learn more about you or pick up a copy of the book, uh, where can they go? Well, to learn more about me and my other books and A Furious Sky, and also you can read the introduction to A Furious Sky, is... If you go to my website, which is just www.ericjdolan, that's E-R-I-C-J-A-Y-D-O-L-I-N.com, and there there's a lot of uh, information about the books, fun stuff, pictures, also it lists where I'm giving talks. Most of my talks for Furious Sky have been transformed into Zoom talks, so they're available online. Uh, but if you wanted to get a copy of the book, I have links on my website. But essentially, the book will be available at any online bookseller that you know of, plus any independent bookstore that is open will either have the book or they can order it for you. So any way you normally get books, you'll be able to get A Furious Sky as well. I, I hope you get a copy. <laughs> Everybody is listening because I think it's a I think it's a fun read. Read. I think it's a very topical read. Not only are we in the midst of what might be an historic hurricane season, but uh, it's something that every year we have to contend with. And I think by understanding the history of hurricanes, it gives you a richer sense of what we're all living through. Uh, well, uh, Eric, uh, thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of uh, the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Uh, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Eric about the uh, very epic history of hurricanes. Uh, if you would like to pick up a copy of his book, I have provided a link for you in the description uh, of this episode in your podcast app. Um, Eric is a great author, and I promise you that this will be a very good read. Uh, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while and you'd like to uh, support the podcast and uh, enjoy a little bit of extra content uh, check out the show's patreon page the show is of course free for you to listen to but it's not necessarily free to create uh, so if you'd like to throw in a dollar or two um, it would be it would of course be totally appreciated as a thank you to all of the show's supporters on patreon uh, i have started uh, adding a little bit of extra content uh, some bonus q a with our guests uh, and so Eric was kind enough to answer the question, uh, something he talks about in his book, uh, what have been attempts throughout history to try to control hurricanes? So head on over to the show's Patreon page at patreon.com slash cmtuhistory. 
And one thing I haven't mentioned in a little while, uh, this show is part of a broader podcast network called Straight Up Strange Productions. Uh, If you scroll a little bit further in your podcast description, uh, you'll find a link to the network page, uh, and you can find all sorts of really excellent podcasts on a myriad of subjects. Uh, Definitely check them out if you get the chance. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.